Well, we're in a series on the existence of God, and if you were here last week, what we talked about was if you don't have God, then can you actually say that anything is actually right or wrong, immoral or immoral, moral or moral, all of those different collections together, can you have good and evil without God? And we looked at the different options last week, and there was one thing that I was not able to address because we just ran out of time. We looked at examples from cultural, what's called cultural relativism. Cultural relativism. And that simply says that good and evil, right and wrong, come from a person's culture. And we looked at different examples like the Nazis, if they were able to take over the whole world and win World War II and convince everyone, because they had control of all the media, all of the education, that what they did in the Holocaust was actually a moral good as opposed to something intrinsically evil, then if they were able to make a one-world culture with one idea that Jews should be exterminated, would it make it right? Looked at other examples throughout history, but there are some objections here. People say, now, Jeff, what you're doing by giving those examples is you're giving examples of people hurting other people. That doesn't necessarily apply. I was teaching a philosophy class a few years ago. This is at a, a secular state school. They're in, in class, and we were having this discussion. And by the way, if you're a skeptic, atheist, agnostic, uh, we're really glad that you're here. Amen, church? We, we are. I, I, really, I really mean that. Like, really, really. I enjoy talking about these issues. And if you're a person who doesn't even claim to have a faith, or if you're a person who claims to deny everything having to do with theism or Christianity, we're still glad that you're here and that you're entertaining these ideas. We had a discussion in class one time, and we started looking at all of these different options through which you could get objective morality, objective, absolute, foundational right and wrong. And we looked at individual relativism, but then it just gets down to the point of we choose whether rape is a moral good or a moral evil. And we know intrinsically we don't even need an argument that things such as rape or purposely harming or, God forbid, torturing small children or little babies just for the fun of it, that is a moral evil and you don't even need an argument, right? I mean, if we're all tracking together, nobody says, give me a syllogism, give me three points to show me why those things are wrong. We just naturally understand that some things are morally twisted, jacked up, and evil. So here's the question. If individual relativism doesn't work, cultural relativism doesn't work, I had this conversation in class to where there were a couple of young ladies, they were atheists, and uh, it was a great class, and we're having these discussions, and they said, well, what, can you get it from, can you get it from just, just nature? And then we said, well, what, what actually in nature causes something to be wrong as opposed to right? They said, well, whatever helps you survive. Well, survival, if you're thinking rationally, is better than death. Y'all all right? Like, I hope that you don't disagree with that. If you do, it looks like we need to talk right afterwards, like right afterwards. So in looking at these issues, there's nothing actually morally superior about survival as opposed to just death. Because if God doesn't exist, that's what's going to happen to everything and every aspect, every square inch of the universe eventually. 
So that doesn't really make sense. And they said, well, well could, you, could you get it from, well, I don't know, the animal kingdom. Well, if that's, if that's the case, and like we looked at last week, there's really no moral difference by, through what we see on animal planet when, you know, this pack, of, this pack of lions is just going after a zebra and ripping them up than what you may see on an episode of Sons of Anarchy with murderers or whatever it may be. There's, there's no moral difference there, but we know that there is. We know that there's a moral difference by what Hitler did in World War II, by what a person who just kills out of self-interest does, and what you see with animals taking other animals' lives. And then they said, finally, well, you just get objective morality from the universe. Like maybe Spock is out there somewhere, and we don't really know. But here's the problem. If you remove God from the possibility of existing, if God does not exist, here's what we're left with, with whichever school of thought you and I come from. We're left with trying to moralize molecules. That means when you get down to it, everything that exists is simply stuff. It's simply matter. It's molecules, atoms, quarks, leptons, neutrons, protons. It's just stuff. And stuff doesn't have the ability to legislate or establish morality. No matter which way we cut it, we're back to trying to moralize molecules and you just can't do it. Here's something that you probably didn't read this morning in your quiet time. It's from Richard Dawkins' book, River Out of Eden. And he kind of captures the picture of what we're looking at if God does not actually exist. And here's what he says. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. Guys, that's when you point to your significant other and say, I got you, baby. I'm lucky, even on atheism. And he says, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should find if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. What Dawkins is saying is if there is no God, then what you and I are left with at the end of the day is nobody ultimately gives a rip about you and I. Even if they do now, ultimately there won't be anybody to do that because everyone will ultimately die. There is no afterlife and there is no higher power, no God to truly care. So at the very core of the universe, it's blind, pitiless indifference. But if you've looked at any of Richard Dawkins' videos or read his books, and by the way, he's the most famous English-speaking atheist in the world. He's the guy that if you talk to most atheists, that's who they go to on the popular level to support their beliefs. But he had made a, a documentary several years ago called The Faith Virus and the Root of All Evil. Guess what's the root of all evil according to Dawkins and the New Atheists? What most of you and I believe the existence of God. And he goes on in that video to say that we have a purpose for life. The purpose for life is just to grab a hold of this random chance that we have, that we, it's, it's insane to think that we can actually exist at all, but we do, so just enjoy it while it lasts. But how can you really get any type of enjoyment on a universe if at the bottom of it there's just simply blind, pitiless indifference? And everything's going to be stripped away from you and I one day. 
the families and jobs and, and things that we love to do and the activities, one day those things will forever be stripped away by the cold fingers of death. So rationally, it's hard to say, can I really even enjoy it knowing that it's all gonna end forever completely and the lights go to black? But even more so, how can Dawkins actually say, if there's no God, I'm gonna give you a purpose for your life? Doesn't it kind of sound like he's playing the part of God? So that's where we left off last week. And today we're gonna look at the idea of fine tuning. When we look at the universe, do we find a universe that is random or a universe that is fine tuned? And we're gonna look at see if there's much evidence that leads us to believe that the universe is finely, finely tuned. So then we have to say, what's the best explanation for that? So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter one, beginning in verse number 19. Verse 19, Romans 1, will go verses 19 and 20 because there's no way that we could unpack um, all of that even in this short time that we have. So let's go to verse 19. The Bible says, for what can be known about God is plain to them or it's evident to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How are those things perceived? Notice what the Apostle Paul says. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The Apostle Paul says from the very beginning of the universe, people have been able to see from just the creation that God is there. What we see in these verses is that the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans that God's existence is very plain and very clear. And he's saying that it's rational, and not only that, it is normal rationally to go from creation, therefore, creator. We tracking together? I know you guys are looking forward to the mechanical bull, but we're gonna have to put on the floaties once again. God's existence is plain in the creation because it's logical and rational to go from the creation to therefore creator. But not only that, he takes it a step further and he says that God's revelation of his existence is to the extent that no person has an excuse for not believing in God. And here's what we want to try to get across this morning with these few minutes that we have left. That possibilities come cheap. For example, if you're a skeptic, that is intellectual couch potato-ness. That's simply laying back on the couch, not doing any work, not trying to find truth, but just saying, well, it could be this, it could be that. Why don't you prove to me God exists? This is a kind of like a your mom apologetics moment, but if somebody's really dogmatic about that, saying that we have to prove the existence of God, throw it back and say, well, why don't you prove the existence of yourself? We don't have time to get into it, but to try to absolutely prove that you actually exist, you have to take a lot of things for granted, such as I'm not a brain in a vat. I'm not Neo, <laughs> Matrix, right? Everything wasn't created a few minutes ago with the appearance of age. I mean, all of these things that are rational for us to assume, but it's very hard if you're going to be a skeptic to even prove yourself. So let's be honest, amen? 
So possibilities come cheap. So here's what we're wanting to do this morning, to understand that a rational, reasonable person chooses from the best or the most reasonable explanation, and we'll look at what the uh, universe actually holds for that. L. Russ Bush said this, what modern secular scientists believe is far more incredible than any miracle accepted by the simple Christian believer. And we'll look at this in two weeks, that atheistic scientists believe that there was a time in which there existed nothing. Hard to even, it blows my mind. I cannot even track with that. Like, and we're not saying, this is a, there, there's a difference here. He's not saying there was a time in which nothing existed because it makes it sound like nothing is something, right? But there was a time in which there existed nothing and then from that nothingness, something came. And I'm like, bro, for real? Like, yeah, from nothingness, everythingness came. I'm like, well, I thought if there, if there is nothing, then how can you get not just something, but everything from the nothing? Science, bro. That's not science, that's philosophy. That's a philosophical belief that nothing or that something could actually come from nothing. I'll take it a step further. I'll just say that's not even a philosophy, that's a religion. Because we believe, and we'll look at this in two weeks, there's a far better answer for that question, and it is the existence of God, that an immaterial mind, God who is a spirit, he's not confined to a body like you and I. He does not age. He doesn't get old. He doesn't have to go to the doctor. He doesn't have a receding hairline. He doesn't have to go get molars pulled. God is spirit. He's able to exist eternally and not grow tired, and God spoke and brought it all into existence. So I think it's a better option to say that there's an immaterial mind, a spirit, that is the cause for everything that exists as opposed to nothingness. But then again, it's a free country. You can choose bad ideas if you want to. So here's the argument that we'll look at this morning, the teleological argument. Say, all right, big word alert. Teleologic, the teleological argument, that idea comes from the Greek word telos, which means purpose, end, or design. And here's the argument. Number one. The universe is fine-tuned. Number two, the signs of fine-tuning are evident. And by the way, this is something that secular atheistic philosophers b believe, that the universe is fine-tuned as well. But what is the best explanation for the fine-tuning? We have three different options. Number one, physical necessity. Number two, chance, kind of like winning the lottery. Number three would be intelligent design. And you probably have an idea of which one of those that I'll choose. Number three, therefore, this evidence points to a designer. <clears throat> William Lane Craig classifies this argument as one of the oldest arguments for God's existence. So what's actually the evidence for the universe being fine-tuned as opposed to being a random argument? This is in your outline, and by the way, if you've got internet access, you can pull it up right now. All of the notes, the extended notes, are on our church Facebook page or RockyMountBaptistChurch.com. There's far more that we have that we could not fit into the outline. So all that is there. There's 30-plus footnotes. You say, Jeff, why would we seemingly go overboard with that? It's because we love people, and people have questions, and we believe that God has answers. And so we want to try to meet people 
where they are. Imagine the beginning stages of the universe. This is what Robin Collins says, that an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 60th power can be compared to, imagine if you stretched out, uh, if you had a one-inch target, and you put that one-inch target in the middle of the known universe. You know, universe from what we know, it's just billions of light years long away. It would be firing one shot and hitting the bullseye on a one-inch target with being able to have a life-permitting universe. And not only that, but when you look at the subatomic scale, you find that there are what are called protons, and those protons are both positively charged. There are people that we know that are protons, and then we have negative tons in our lives, but God uses that to make us more like Jesus. So you have these protons, and people say, well, how do you get these two positive charges attracted to one another? And the answer is the strong nuclear force. But what science has shown us, that if that nuclear force was stronger or weaker by only 5%, you could not have a life-permitting universe. So if you didn't have a strong nuclear force holding together those protons, you would have no atoms. And if you have no atoms, then you have no life permitting universe. Not only that, but gravity, a very heavy subject. Robin Collins says, come on, that was awesome. Robin Collins says that if the force of gravity had been increased by one part in 10 to the 34th power, 10 with 34 zeros, then even single-celled organisms would be crushed and only planets less than around 100 feet in diameter could sustain life with our brain size. And you know, you, it's really hard to sustain life on a, on a 100 foot diameter planet. So even gravity itself, the constant of gravity, allows for there to be the possibility of life in the universe. And then speaking of atoms, this is what Robin Collins says as well. He says, if the neutron were not about 1.001 times the mass of the proton, all protons would have decayed into neutrons, or all neutrons would have decayed into protons, and thus life would not be possible. You see, if the conditions varied just a tiny degree, there would not even be the possibility of atoms. And if there were no atoms, then there would be no possibility of life. And not only that, but the electromagnetic force, if it were stronger or weaker, life would not be possible at all. So when we look at the universe, it's incredibly fine-tuned. So then the question is, how did it get to be that way? One option would be physical necessity. People say, well, it just had to be that way. And this is a theory called the multiverse. It simply says that it's kind of like a bread machine, that there's this thing that produces all of these universes, and there had to be a universe that's life-permitting. But let's ask the question, if you have a universe producer, doesn't that have to be fine-tuned to produce universes to begin with? So for people who try to posit or put forward the idea of a multiverse to take away from fine-tuning or design, then they're simply confirming, even if that's true, that there is design. You see, it takes more faith to believe in many in a many universes generator than God, because you have to ask the question, well, where did the universe generator come from? It would need to be well-designed to support a life-supporting earth as well. 
And then some will say that, well, it's not just by physical necessity. It's not that it just had to be that way, but the universe could be fine-tuned as the result of chance. Lee Strobel, in his book, A Case for the Creator, quotes two very famous scientists, Press and Seaver, and they wrote in their book, Rare Earth, they use words like, quote, sheer luck, quote, a rance, a rare chance happening. And at a conference, one of the authors remarked, quote, we are just incredibly lucky. Someone had to win the big lottery and we were it. Isn't it interesting that with all of the fine-tuning that we find, regardless of your religion or your philosophy from scientists, isn't it interesting how easily people go to avoid the conclusion that there's a designer? And to make this a little clearer, they said that what it could be compared to is if you were to stretch out a radial dial, let's go old school AM with the bluegrass station still rocking it, Stretch that bad boy out the entire length of the known universe. And in order to get a life-permitting universe, you would have to dial. Remember when you actually had to turn a knob? Tell that to your children. They're like, no. You're like, yes. And sometimes with pliers, with the TV, right? When the knob would tear off. In order to have a life-permitting universe, you stretch it out the entire distance of the known universe, and you must tune your dial to, this is mind-blowing, I, I can't even track with this, but it says to a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch. If it's off in either direction, the conditions are such that you can't have a life-permitting Universe. And what blew my mind studying for this is noting and realizing that Jupiter, which is almost 300 times the mass of Earth, it basically acts as a shield for Earth. It absorbs all sorts of these comets. We have Mars that absorbs these things from the asteroid, asteroid belt as well, and Venus does also. So even, this is so interesting, even the placement of Earth in a life-permitting universe is very, very curious because it's almost like the universe is fine-tuned and earth is at the place to where you could actually have life continue and not be wiped out time and time again or forever. Dennis Schiema from Cambridge University, small school over in the UK, said, quote, if you change a little bit of the laws of nature, you change a little bit the constants of nature, it is very likely that intelligent life would not have been able to develop. So the idea of saying it happened by chance, I'll go ahead and give the blue ribbon of faith to anyone who wants to believe that. We can make choices but I think if we're going to be really rational and let's just go a step further, be reasonable, we follow to the best possible explanation. The physical constants, we say, well, that doesn't really add up. But finally, the third option is intelligent design. Intelligent design. Here's what John A. O'Keefe who was educated at Harvard and the University of Chicago. He says, we are, by astronomical standards, a pampered, cherished group of creatures. Our Darwinian claim to have done it all by ourselves is as ridiculous and, and as charming as a baby's brave efforts to stand on its own feet and refuse its mother's hand. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, 
We could never have come into existence. It is my view that these circumstances indicate the universe was created for man to live in. And I know about you guys, but when I got saved, it wasn't this stuff that necessarily brought me to Jesus. You say, well, Jeff, what what does this have to do with Christianity? It has everything to do with it. Jesus has called us to love the Lord our God with all of our minds, right? Soul and strength. And sometimes when we look at these things and they seem kind of obtuse and big and we say, well, Jeff, I, just, I came to church, man. I'm just trying to get through this week. I, I wasn't thinking about the teleological argument and the cosmological constant and the anthropological principle. I mean, all, all of these things. But isn't it interesting that when we look at how great God is, and by the way, that's, that's the conclusion that the universe came about as the result of design. But to see how incredibly complex the universe is and how great and brilliant whoever designed the universe must be, I think that gives me some confidence that I can bring my issues to Jesus. Because as we'll see in several weeks, the question of which God is it or what is the God like who designed the cosmos can be answered in the resurrection. And we find that his name is Jesus Christ. And there are some who I've talked to and they say, well, Jeff, what I'll do is I will believe that God exists if, if somebody would just prove to me a miracle. Do you remember the rich man in Luke chapter 16 who died and went to hell? And he was in hell and he called to Lazarus across that separation point and he said, Lazarus, or could you just send Lazarus back to tell my brothers about this place? Because if someone rises from the dead, they'll believe in God. They'll believe in the afterlife. They'll believe in these things. And you remember what Jesus said, that if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe even if a person rises from the dead. You know, the issue for most of us, the reason why we withhold from giving our lives to God, it's not because of scientific arguments. It's because we don't want to say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. Can we talk honestly this morning? We could talk about the teleological argument a whole lot more. Next week, we're going to get into the, in the question of, well, what about evolution? What does the Bible say about that? Where does the evidence point? Can you have evolution even without God? We're going to get into those details, but I think this is a good place for us to sit down for a moment and say, am I willing to let God win the argument? For some in here, it, it may be that God winning the argument, it means that you're giving your life to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, saying, God, I know that you're there. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need to be changed. And for others who have been born again and been biblically baptized, it may be something that you're struggling with. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe for some, it's an issue of saying, I've got, I've got some unforgiveness that I'm harboring in my heart, but I know that God is right because he's led me to see that I need to let go and I need to release and I need to forgive. You see, when it comes down to reasonableness, time and time again, you know what God has shown me? He says, Jeff, you don't have all the answers. I don't. All of us collectively, we don't have all the answers, but what we do know is that God is real. And if you're still doubting that, why don't you seek the Lord? That could be your response to the Lord this morning. Begin to say, God, if you're really there, help me to know what to study. Would you reveal yourself to me in some special way? Would you help me to know if you're really there, to genuinely seek the Lord with all of your heart?